Uh, we'll take a quick look at the weather before we go. It'll be cold, cloudy to overcast with a few rain patches. The maximum temperature around 16 degrees, moderate to fresh north to northeasterly winds. Uh, the outlook uh, winds strengthening from the north tomorrow night. Winds and further becoming colder over the weekend. Uh, temperatures in the urban areas are falling below 10 degrees on Sunday and Monday and a few degrees lower in the new territories. Uh, currently it's 13 Celsius, 95% uh, relative humidity. Money Talk will be back uh, tomorrow morning at the same time. After the news headlines, it will be uh, back chat. Um, and I'll see you in the morning. Here's Andrew with the headlines. President Biden has said the United States should have societal guilt for failing to take more action to address gun violence. He was speaking on the 10th anniversary of America's worst mass school shooting when a man entered the Sandy Hook Elementary School and killed 26 people, all but six of them young children. President Biden wants to ban all assault weapons. Speaking in the U.S. Senate, Senator Richard Blumenthal said the demand for gun reform remained a top priority. Congress must do its job to strengthen our laws and prevent gun violence. The advocates and activists who are continuing this movement, we will continue that. We will honor with action the lives that are lost, not only in Sandy Hook, but all around this country. Separately, President Biden has announced a raft of new measures aimed at boosting trade with Africa. He was addressing more than 40 African leaders in Washington as the U.S. attempts to reassert its influence on the continent. Mr. Biden outlined some of the $55 billion of U.S. funding planned for Africa, including for clean energy projects. He said investing there would benefit everyone. This forum is about building connections. It's about closing deals. And above all, it's about the future, our shared future. We've known for a long time that Africa's success and prosperity is essential to assuring a better future for all of us, not just for Africa. Because when Africa succeeds, the United States succeeds. Quite frankly, the whole world succeeds as well. The head of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, said he's hopeful that COVID-19 will no longer be a global public health emergency next year. But Dr. Tedros warned that the availability of vaccines remains a big challenge, with only a fifth of people in low-income countries having received a jab. But he said that while COVID was still affecting many people around the world, the situation is improving. Last week, less than 10,000 people lost their lives that's still 10,000 too many. And there is still a lot that all countries can do to save lives. But we have come a long way. The Peruvian government has declared a 30-day nationwide state of emergency. It comes as supporters of the ousted President Pedro Castillo continue to block roads and stage protests. The BBC's Katie Watson reports. Since Pedro Castillo was ousted, seven people have died in protests and there have been roadblocks across the country. Mr Castillo was impeached shortly after attempting to dissolve Congress and rule by decree. But his supporters, many of whom are in rural and mining areas, want to see him released and fresh elections called. Defence Minister Alberto Torola said a state of emergency was necessary to keep the peace and ensure the safety of Peruvians. It means that soldiers will be able to help police in maintaining public security. President Dina Boluarte, who was sworn in after Mr Castillo was removed, has called for calm and said elections could be moved forward in an effort to ease the political crisis.
In Turkey, the mayor of Istanbul, seen as a strong rival to President Erdogan, has been sentenced to two and a half years in prison and banned from politics for insulting public officials. Addressing supporters, Ekrem Imamoglu said the sentence was a sign of the current conditions in Turkey. This court case has proved that there's no justice left in Turkey. This case is led by people who do not want to bring the values such as justice and democracy to Turkey. In fact, this is a case which was shamelessly influenced and decided by the people who claim ownership of everything and see themselves as the state and the nation. Health officials in Greenland are extending an uh, investigation into a birth control scandal in which thousands of Inuit women were fitted with contraceptive devices without their consent. This report from the BBC's Elaine Young. The BBC gathered accounts as recent as 2018 from women in Greenland who'd had a contraceptive device inserted without their knowledge. The cases were revealed on the back of an official investigation into a Danish birth control scandal which saw thousands of Inuit women and girls in Greenland fitted with a coil in the 60s and 70s. That official inquiry will look at what happened up until 1991. But Greenland's National Health Board has now called on women with recent experiences of involuntary contraception to come forward as part of a wider assessment into whether historic practices are still a widespread issue. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and our guest presenter is Jenny Lam. On today's program, we're talking about a potential game changer in energy production, nuclear fusion. For decades, scientists have been looking to harness the enormous power that comes from forcing light atoms to merge together. The trouble is, it's always taken more energy to achieve this feat than it generates. Until now. So American scientists have finally made a breakthrough by actually producing excess energy from nuclear fusion on a very small scale. However, this is proof of concept for a means of energy production that scientists believe could give humanity a virtually limitless supply of clean, carbon-free energy. So what does this new experiment mean? Is it an answer to our energy woes? How far away are we from achieving nuclear fusion on a useful scale? After 9.15, we'll talk about the prospects for a tobacco-free future. A new survey found that most are pessimistic. Four in five think banning sales to people born after a specific year won't work. And at 9.25, we'll get the latest World Cup update from our sports correspondent. So do let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us on backchat at rthk.hk, or give us a call on two double three double eight two double six. Now, joining our discussion this morning, we have on the line Professor Matthew Hall, a senior fellow at uh, Australian National University, Dr. William Yu, the chief executive officer of World Green Organization, and environmentalist Peggy Liu, the chairperson of the NGO Joint U.S.-China Collaboration on Clean Energy. Good morning to you all, and thanks for joining us on the program. Um, Professor Hall, let's start with you. This um, latest experiment is being hailed as a breakthrough. Can you first explain its significance? So it's, uh, I would describe it perhaps better as a, as a milestone or a scientific milestone. So it's important, as you pointed out, that uh, uh, this is the first time that it's been able to generate 
that energy yield, uh, where the energy yield from the reaction is greater than the auxiliary heating. In this case, the heating was from the laser uh, laser supply. So it is a scientific milestone, uh, which is, I guess, important worth and worth recognising in the long trajectory towards fusion power development. Uh, it would be worth saying that uh, there are different types of energy technologies in a fusion space. This is inertial confinement fusion. Uh, the majority of the research program in the world is, is in toroidal magnetic confinement. Uh, they are very different technologies. Um, and this is an important outcome. Uh, it's also worth noting, however, that this facility is primarily funded to continue the U.S. weapons program under a comprehensive test ban treaty. So, look, it's an important outcome, um, but it's shaped by the technology uh, that's being utilised. Right, so you, you mentioned that it's a milestone, but um, this is very far from uh, developing a fusion technology as a viable form of energy where we can uh, just plug it, plug in and use at home, right? So that's right. So, I mean, to convert, there, there is a pathway forward for inertial confinement. Uh, that path forward translates from one pulse uh, every, uh, well, one or two pulses a week to 10 pulses a second, uh, which would, would be required to um, produce something that is going to produce net power. And at the same time, you'd also have to improve the efficiency of the lasers, which is pretty low, around about 10% or so. So there is a pathway, but there is a lot of technological development that would have to follow that pathway uh, to produce that power. I think whilst the toroidal magnetic confinement pathway has not demonstrated the same energy yield yet, it will very soon. And I think that pathway, because it's steady state and intrinsically continuous operation, is far more likely to generate that power. And if you sort of project forward on timescales, there are some suggestions. I mean, the UK is particularly ambitious in this space. They're hoping to have a uh, a, st a spherical tokamak producing power to the grid in the mid-2040s. Uh, and there are some private companies in the U.S. that are pr promising to do some, something on even faster timescales. So uh, the, the difference is the technology that they're proposing to use. But in the case of inertial confinement, uh, there is still a long way to go. So, I mean, this is uh, uh, largely reported as an American uh, breakthrough, but, but actually this uh, nuclear fusion technology has been... Uh, you know, scientists from all over the world under the International Thermonuclear Experimental uh, Reaction, uh, Reactor Project have been working on it for, for decades. Um, back in October uh, in China, the, um, they reported that they, they generated a plasma current of more than a million amp. Um, so what is this latest breakthrough by the Americans? How is that different from what China did back in October? pathway is very different. So the technology pathways that you're referring to both with ITER and China are with regard to the tokamak toroidal magnetic confinement pathway. And that pathway is much more amenable, I think, to producing steady-state power because it's intrinsically continuous, whereas the, ex the, the experiments that have been reported in the US are a series of lasers that are shined down to a whole arm, which is a cylindrical target, and then they're either through a combination of direct or indirect radiation pressure, heats a DT ice pellet to ignition. So the experiment in the U.S. is a totally different technology path, uh, 
than the technology path that is being pursued actively through the ETIC consortium uh, and toroidal magnetic confinement pathway, which is also being used in China. So they're both producing, the idea is to produce uh, net power, and certainly the break-even threshold is a scientific milestone. The pathway that they use to achieve that outcome is very different. Right, and let's go to Ms. Liu. Good morning, Ms. Liu. Hi, good morning. Good morning. So we're looking at this uh, um, nuclear fusion technology. It has the potential to achieve uh, a limitless supply of clean carbon-free energy. And uh, when we look at the climate change situation and the energy crisis caused by the uh, Russia-Ukraine war, uh, how desperate uh, are we for a limitless uh, supply of clean carbon-free energy, would you say? Well, I think regardless of wars, the world, the Earth, is very desperate for both the holy grail in energy production as well as the holy grail in energy storage. We really need both in order for us to be able to solve the climate change challenges that we're faced with. So it was an amazing announcement, a great milestone that should be celebrated. And I, uh, you know, applaud them. I actually had the pleasure of getting a private tour at Lawrence Livermore National Lab very early on by Dr. Julio Friedman when he was the chief energy technologist. So at that time, what he told me was the problem is how do you actually keep this reaction going for longer than, you know, a nanosecond? So again, the milestone, as Professor Hull said, is one that should be celebrated, but it is a very small one in a long journey to making a commercially viable fusion power plant. Right now, what we've done is essentially striked a match, lighted a match compared to a combustion engine, as Hulu likes to say. So that's where we're at with energy production and the holy grail of nuclear fusion. Right, so just just to put it into perspective for our listeners, um, it is actually what they did was they input two megajoules of energy and then they got out 3.15 megajoules. Now, um, from what I've read, uh, that's actually, the energy output is actually only enough to bo- to boil about 15 to 20 kettles. Um, so what are I the mean, challenges? Yeah, it's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, at least 20 to 100 times more return in order to get commercial. Right. So, so what are the challenges that the scientists have to face now in order that one day we can actually feed enough into the energy grid? And not, not, just, not just feed it into the energy grid, but to feed it so that it, the grid doesn't crash. What are the challenges that we're looking at? Right. It's really the energy storage that is almost even more important than the energy production. Because what's going to happen for climate change solutions is that we're going to have this checkerboard of solutions. We're going to have solar, we're going to have hydro, we're going to have wave technology, we're going to have nuclear fusion, nuclear fission, and we're just going to have a lot of different energy sources. But the problem is all of that is sort of mixed in during the day and night. And how does how do we actually make that consistently available to you when you boil your tea in Hong Kong? And so the key is to have really cheap, durable, long-lasting, and environmentally friendly energy storage. And the the good news, actually, less uh, press attention has been focused on this, but we've actually reached the holy grail of battery storage, of energy storage, and that is graphene, pure play, solid-state energy storage that is manufactured 
at a commercial scale. That's the key, is a commercial scale getting out of the lab and into your living room. So I think for energy storage, we're, we're there. It's just a matter of getting the market to react and design it into cars, design the graphene energy into grids, um, design it into uh, your, for example, elevators for emergency recovery. And then we can plug and play any energy source like nuclear fusion maybe 20 years from now. All right. Or like wave technology. All so right. I'm very excited. Let's, uh, let's go to uh, Dr. Yu. Good morning. Hi, good morning. So do you agree? I mean, uh, Ms. Liu here, she's saying uh, energy storage is more important than uh, energy uh, production. Uh, definitely, definitely. I, I think um, uh, it is also the current issue we, we face um, from uh, using renewable energy. Um, uh, how we can store up, you know, uh, like the solar um, in the daytime that we can use it uh, for the nighttime. So uh, energy storage definitely um, a direction uh, to consider and to solve the energy crisis in the future. Uh, but uh, but I, I would uh, like to supplement is from a life cycle uh, perspective, uh, we can see the good news is the energy input much less than the energy output. Uh, that's one uh, advantage and another is uh, there is no uh, greenhouse gas emission. Um, that uh, uh, also there is no uh, radioactive waste by product uh, produced throughout the process. Um, I, I, I think that's uh, important uh, as a condition for uh, green energy. And but I, I agree, it's a long road uh, to go for commercialization. How we can convert, you know, in a lab setting uh, to a scale-up um, kind of power plant uh, operate in a commercial setting, I think it takes many years. So that won't address the short-term, I would say, uh, energy crisis at the moment. Um, yeah, so, so still we need to look for alternatives. Right. I have a Facebook comment here from Ning Wu, one of our listeners, um, and she says uh, the experiment is definitely important, but we are nowhere near a limitless clean energy, as uh, all of you pointed out. And uh, she says that uh, to paraphrase an old Chinese saying, um, she says our problems are rooted not in scarcity, but inequality. This technology, should it exist in the distant future, is of course a great boon, but it will not be the clean energy solution we need to overcome humanity's immediate woes. If we're interested in nuclear, why not nuclear fission? We know how to do that well. It's safe and efficient when done properly. And uh, that's from Ning Wu. So, Professor Hall, should we just uh, stick to what we already know? So, well, I think there are two parts of that question. So, fusion is important for planet Earth, I think. Uh, it will be important in the long term to power sustainably huge cities and power sustainably industry. Uh, and it will be much cleaner and uh, much lower radioactive waste than fission. And it would complement uh, the renewable energy supply sector. So, ultimately, even renewables is all fusion power at a distance. To go to the question about uh, conventional nuclear power, I think, I think, unfortunately, the world is too late to address climate change. Uh, climate change is happening right now. Even if we stopped all fossil fuel emissions tonight, it would still, uh, the, the sea level would still rise. Uh, the, the temperature will rise 
and there will be still a large amount of damage uh, done to civilization. The best that we can do is try to minimize that total amount of damage, and that means removing um, or stopping fossil fuel emissions as quickly as possible. And if there are energy technologies that work, we should employ them, yes. So it would make sense to employ uh, uh, conventional nuclear power as quickly as possible. There are safe pathways to do that. Uh, I don't work particularly in that space. I know about the technology, um, but it is much safer uh, than uh, the alternative, which is basically to let climate change, a climate, a chi- climate change complete disaster unfold across the whole planet. So, uh, yes, I think there is a case for, uh, for utilising much more extensively uh, conventional nuclear power. Right. What, what about in terms of costs as this nuclear uh, fusion um, uh, technology? Now, the, the main problem with fission is that the large amount of radioactive waste. With fusion, we don't have that. But then, but then fusion in, involves some, if, well, right now, pretty costly technology. It involves a, something called a, a tokamak equipment to, to right. contain so, the so. heat. So the Chocomac is the pathway for, which, as I said, was the most advanced pathway to producing power to the grid. Um, you know, first-of-a-kind technology is always going to be expensive. Um, first-of-a-kind car was, was, it was hideously inefficient and uh, would be nowhere near competitive by... Uh, would not be commercially viable at all. Uh, so it's well known that first-of-a-kind technology will not work particularly effectively. Um, but that doesn't mean there is not scientific reason to believe that it is possible to produce large-scale amounts of energy. Uh, we already know that fusion does work. It powers the sun and the stars. Uh, we, can, we can see that it can work in the laboratory. The question is, can it be made economically attractive? And if so, uh, I mean, the, the flip side of that is, what do you mean by economically attractive? Uh, do you mean by including all the uh, greenhouse gas, uh, gas emissions factor them into the economic quote, and if so, then, you know, there are suggestions that nuclear fusion could become uh, comparable uh, in terms of uh, cost to wind and comparable in terms of environmental impact. So there are pathways for fusion to work, but it's going to take time and research development to make it happen. Right. And uh, Professor Hall, I mean, this is going to sound a bit off topic, but uh, are you a Spider-Man fan? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because I'm, I'm asking, I'm just asking because uh, with this uh, fusion technology we're talking about, um, it was uh, famously portrayed in the Spider-Man 2 movie around uh, eight years ago. But if you remember, the fusion reactor created by Dr. Octopus in the movie was unstable and caused a lot of damage. And what I'm getting at here is uh, exactly how safe or how stable is nuclear fusion technology? I mean, is it possible for a Dr. Octopus to happen? So, look, Hollywood films are designed to make money um, and designed to appeal to a vivid imagination. So reality is something quite different. So the challenge in fusion uh, always in the laboratory is getting the experiment to occur at all because you have to bring the charged particles very close together to allow the strong nuclear force to take over and combine them. So that's why fusion has been, uh, to date, not even demonstrated break-even with an atomic because it's very difficult to do. You have to bring the temperature up to 100 million degrees. The most likely outcome of even a plasma becoming unstable is that the experiment shuts down. That's that's all. That's almost. In fact, that, that is exactly what happens in every single colloidal confinement experiment to date. Uh, 
that if the plasma becomes unstable, the machine, the, the plasma terminates. And it terminates just by extinguishing. There's no... The worst that could happen is perhaps you, you uh, damage the wall of the machine. But even in... I mean, there have been lots of environmental impact safety studies looking at what would be the worst impact of, uh, of a plane, a 747, crashing into the entire facility. And at the very worst, you would end up with... Um, some tritium release that would be at, at worst, the level of background radiation at the perimeter would be at background levels. So the most likely scenario um, is that uh, I don't think you can end up with a, a Dr. Octopus uh, <laughs> scenario. The, the most likely scenario is that you end up with uh, an expensive piece of infrastructure not operating properly. Uh, but there's no danger to public safety. And there's no da- but particularly for tour and magnetic confinement, there is no Weaponization potential either. I'm now going to go back to Hollywood. Do you remember that scene of the Mr. Fusion uh, machine in Back to the Future where he just put in a little bit of rubbish and then it generated yeah. power? <laughs> you remember that? So, so, so that's the thing. What about cost of the raw material? It's, it's not going to be like Back in the Future. Put in a banana peel. <laughs> the, the, the raw material here is deuterium and and tritium, as far as I understand. Deuterium you can get out of the seawater, but tritium is actually from lithium. And don't we already have a lot of competition in, in, in uh, sourcing lithium? Is that going to be a problem? Professor? So you're right. Tritium, tritium is not... Uh, tritium has, is radioactive and has a half-life of 12 and a half years, so it has to be manufactured, and you manufacture it typically by activating lithium. So... There is, but I mean, if you look at the world energy, I mean, there are also different energy fusion reactions. If you just restrict to DT fusion, there is still sufficient uh, lithium available to power civilizations for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. And if you change to the the DD reaction, so if you just do away with the tritium reaction and use the DD reaction, it goes into billions of years. And the deuterium is the sec is hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe, nearly, nearly 100% of the universe, 99.95% or something is, is hydrogen. And for every 6,000 hydrogen atoms is one deuterium. So deuterium is the second most uh, abundant uh, particle, if you like, or atomic particle in the universe. So the supply of deuterium is enormous. So the comment would be is that deuterium tritium would not be the long-term... I mean, it would be the first reaction that you utilise because it's got the highest cross-section. But the idea would be then to move on to different uh, fusion reactions uh, that have much more higher abundance. And even if you were limited to DT, well, maybe you can... Um, um, I mean, the, we're talking about... We're talking about way beyond civilization timescales in, uh, in terms of energy supply. Um, so I don't think it's I don't think it's going to be a problem, and even if it were a problem, we'll use a different reaction. All right, so let's go back uh, to uh, Doctor Yu briefly before we uh, take a break for the news. Uh, how, I mean, how, how does, uh, in your view, how does nuclear fusion compare with uh, um, other renewable energy we, we have right now? Um, I, I think the cost is a matter of consideration, as uh, we still. Uh, we, we can see, you know, um, how we can achieve an uh, economies of scale in order to lower uh, the production cost from the new uh, nuclear fusion. I, I think, uh, again, it takes a, a long road. Uh, 
you know, uh, after spending 70 years of um, research, now we now we uh, reach this point, but still uh, far far away from turning to a, a commercial power plant. Uh, for for renewable, I, I think it's the way to go, especially uh, during the current um, energy crisis. Um, many countries, especially European countries, start to speed up, you know, the conversion to renewable energy. But you will see uh, the percentage is still not very high. Um, in some European countries, the highest is around 30% of renewable energy in uh the entire energy mix, but on average, it's around 10%. So there's a, 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 a there is a gap, and how they can speed up, you know, all this installation of renewable energy. I think it takes time, especially the industry cluster is not is no longer available uh, in European countries. So again, uh, China is the largest uh, solar uh, installation and production. Of, uh, place to supply all this. So um, I, I think that takes some time to uh, get to the destination. All right, uh, Dr. Yu, I'm afraid I have to stop you there for a moment because uh, we need to take a break for the news. Uh, we can, of course, continue our discussion in three minutes' time. And uh, Professor Hall, thanks again for joining us this morning. Professor Matthew Hall is a senior fellow at Australian National University. If you uh, want to ask questions or just share your views on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or give us a call at 233 Now, here's the weather cold and cloudy with a few rain patches the top temperature will be around 16 degrees winds moderate to fresh north to northeasterlies and uh, the cold weather warning is currently in force right now it's 13 degrees relative humidity 94 percent Anna Swong. Still with us on the program is Dr. William Yu, the Chief Executive Officer of World Green Organization, and environmentalist Peggy Liu, the chairperson of the NGO Joint US-China Collaboration on Clean Energy. So Peggy Liu, I, I want to understand something. Um, when the Director of Energy, the, this is the US Director of Energy, Jennifer uh, Granholm, when she announces a nuclear fusion breakthrough, the first thing she actually said in terms of what this means, is that it allows um, the United States to maintain a safe nuclear deterrent when no nuclear tests are needed. What 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 do we mean? Is this is this going to be about missiles now, rather than uh, as well as clean energy? Well, number one, I just wanted to put into context for our listeners again that this is technology that will likely be. 20 or 30 years out before we can actually use it. So until then, it's really just an interesting, uh, you know, test case, a pilot within a very secretive lab, Lawrence Livermore National Lab, that nobody gets access to. So I wouldn't worry about things like, uh, you know, missile technology, et cetera, for, for this. Most likely, when we actually are able to harness the type of power that the sun is able to uh, create with nuclear fusion, it will be time for us to travel space, for example, and power our, uh, you know, UFOs, if you will, you know, our, our spacecraft. It will be used to create maybe water from, you know, desalinate water from the oceans without a lot of energy. But, it, you know, in the short term, I wouldn't worry about any type of uh, narrative that includes military use. 
But is a, is, there is that potential? Is there, is there I, a, I mean, I, I personally... I, I personally don't think so, and I, I you know, just generally speaking, because my organization was started out of the first public dialogues between U.S. and Chinese government officials on clean energy, that was a new, that was an administration ago, 2007. One of the things that I, I want to say very clearly is, is that the, there is a narrative um, that is very divisive that is going on right now in the world, and we just heard the news where... Um, President Biden talked about how what is good for Africa is good for the world. Well, you you could easily say what is good for China is good for the world as well. Uh, and yet we're not able to programmatically collaborate in a way that the world can help, uh, you know, solve climate change together. So I think a lot of this is about how you emo- how people emotionally react to these narratives that are not very nuanced. So I think at this point, Lawrence Livermore National Lab is trying to create energy that will give the United States an edge for sure, because if you have cheap or relatively free energy, then every cost across the entire supply chain comes down, and that will ultimately give America an edge. And that's why every country that can, like China, is also trying to work on nuclear Fusion. But again, it's a long, long time away. All right. And, uh, and Dr. Yu, I mean, like what uh, Ms. Lee was just saying, uh, nuclear fusion uh, technology will probably take uh, 20 to 30 years uh, before we can actually um, uh, use it commercially, maybe. Um, so, so during this period, do you think uh, we should rely more on renewable energy? Um, I, I think um, in, in the midterm, yeah, certainly yes. Uh, is uh, more mature, and you can see the price of, say, for example, solar energy uh, dropped by 90, 90% during these uh, 15 years. Uh, so you will see the cost uh, continue to decrease uh, and uh, uh, quite close to the fossil fuel price. I, I would say that that is a good sign, and uh, we, we will see uh, the further expansion of renewable energy. Uh, in the future, but you know uh, there is a limitation uh, of the re- uh, renewable energy. Uh, as uh, we we can see, uh, light solar is only available in the daylight, and for the wind technology, uh, sometimes uh, uh, we can see in in the nighttime, sometimes in the daytime. So, how to maintain a stable energy supply? I, I think that's um, a challenge. So we. We need this and that's kind of back uh, to the storage. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. We uh, on the one hand we need a low base technology. So uh, nuclear, nuclear energy or coal fire plant are the low uh, base uh, technology. Now we are currently using. That is, uh, they provide a very stable supply uh, to ensure a, a basic level of energy supply. But um, as you said, um, the the energy storage technology uh, definitely uh, 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 the future direction. How we can store up all this renewable energy for use anytime? I, I think uh, that goes back to the smart grid concept. Uh, we we can uh, have this uh, technology, the renewable energy available all the time. So um, that's uh, 
the future direction. Right, but but limitation of uh, renewable energy is not the only problem, is it? Because uh, I have an email from a listener called Mike, and uh, he's uh, raising concerns about uh, the waste it actually generates. He says uh, solar, wind, these methods are a ecological disaster. Kick down the road for the next generation to deal with. What do you do with the piles and piles of worn-out solar panels? And then he talks about the cost it takes uh, to dispose of uh, all those solar panels and uh, ma- materials that uh, need to be recovered. Um, yeah, so, so Dr. Yu, what do we do with that? Uh, yes, that's the, um, the challenge we, we can see. I mean, uh, in uh, the wind technology, uh, we use uh, quite a, a, a significant amount of um, r- r- uh, rare metal. Uh, I, I think that's uh, one uh, area we need to pay attention. And also uh, for solar energy, uh, I think the fossil material produced uh, during the production uh, can be solved, uh, especially in China. I, what I heard is uh, uh, for the large scale of production of the uh, solar manufacturer, they are able to address this toxicity issue uh, during the production. So how we can handle carefully about uh, the waste uh, created when we uh, produce this kind of silicon-based solar panel. Um, So again, uh, how to deal with all these uh, side issues or once we uh, solve one problem and create another problem at the same time, just like the battery issue in our electrical vehicle, uh, uh, um, thousands and millions of battery will be produced and disposed, uh, you know, for this um, kind of uh, conversion to EV. So again, uh, we, we also need to address this kind of waste challenges. All right, Peggy Lee, what, what about nuclear fusion then? The, 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 one of the byproducts is helium. Is, is, is this going to be cost, cause problems of disposal? I, I don't think helium, given that it's so light, is going to cause problems. But if I may basically, again, give some context to three different things when we need to shift our energy system towards renewables, we need to think about what is actually the source of producing energy. And that's where we're talking about nuclear fusion, we're talking about solar, we're talking about wind. And then there's the even more critical component, which is, where can we store this in a way that it won't degrade, the energy won't uh, be lost over time, and so that we can use it whenever we want, that we can have unlimited storage, then we can have less amount of solar panels and wind turbines to create the energy. And then the third part is actually transmitting the electricity over long distances without loss. So what I, yes, the Solar panels are definitely toxic right now. It's very hard to recycle. There are some interesting um, improvements, some technologies that are still lab-based from, for example, MIT, where you can uh, print, 3D print nanoparticles into solar panels. So one day we'll have fabric or uh, sailboats with the sails be actually solar panels. But what's really interesting is what I had uh, mentioned earlier, which is graphene solid state supercapacitor pure play batteries. So graphene is made out of carbon, which is in all life forms. 
So graphene can actually be made out of pig poop, for example. <laughs> pig poop has carbon, which then can be structured with a, a quick zap, uh, flashing, into graphene, which becomes something that is uh, basically like immortal energy. It's the Superman of energy. So it will store the charge from a solar panel or a wind turbine for a long time without degrading uh, the amount of electricity. It can be charged and recharged for 120 years versus the lithium iron phosphate, which is maybe five to seven years life cycle before it really deteriorates um, in terms of usable electricity. So graphene can also be used for transmission lines for very, very long transmission lines, let's say solar panels in Africa feeding the European continent with maybe less than 1% degradation of electricity. So the good news is that while we are still waiting for nuclear fusion, the holy grail of electric electricity uh, production, we now, for the first time in March 2021, have the holy grail of energy storage uh, at our doorstep, about to scale. And then it won't be that much longer before we have ultra-high-voltage transmission lines, undersea submarine cables that are able to both transmit electricity from continent to continent, island to island, as well as data on this single cable. So I just want to give people good news that we are going to be able to uh, have very large increases in terms of how much renewable energy we're going to use towards our goal of net zero um, emissions in China f in 2060, or for a lot of Pacific Islanders, net zero energy use, uh, fossil fuel energy use by 2045. So this is good news all around. When, and when you talk about these graphene panels, are, are they widely used right now? Where are they being used? And, and what's the cost involved? So right now, again, the first ever company to figure out how to mass market, mass manufacture these graphene batteries, that, that has been basically keeping graphene in the lab versus boiling you know, uh, water for our tea, that released in March of 2021, last year, as golf carts. So these golf carts were able to go from 20 miles range to 160 miles range and make the entire golf cart lighter. And the batteries that I found, uh, which I think is the holy grail, is 53% cheaper than the closest competitor of Tesla Powerwall. It's also completely green because you make, can make it out of things like pig poop, as I said, <laughs> and you can completely recycle it back to nature, back to carbon. So this really is the holy grail of what we call circular economy, um, environmentalists like to say, where we're imitating nature, where there's no waste. We're not trying to mine the earth for lithium, which we'll, we'll probably use 10% of the world's lithium by 2050 and 100% of cobalt by 2050. So the current chemistry uh, of batteries is just not viable if we're going to scale renewable energy. 
All right, so Miss Liu. Uh, <laughs> all right, Miss Liu. Uh, we have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's uh, Peggy Liu, the uh, chairperson of the NGO Joint U.S.-China Collaboration on Clean Energy. Many thanks also to uh, Dr. William Yu, the chief executive officer of World Green Organization. Let's uh, now turn to a different topic, and it's about the prospects for a tobacco-free future. A new study found that most people surveyed are pessimistic. Four in five think banning sales to people born after a specific year won't work. To tell us more, we're joined on the line by Harry Cheung, Secretary General of the Concern Group Community Development Pulsation. Good morning, Mr. Cheung. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, can you first uh, tell us more about the findings of your survey? Okay. Uh, I'll just briefly introduce the data distribution first. Uh, most, more of than half of the respondents believe that a substantial increase in tobacco tax will not be effective in promoting smokers to quit smoking. More than 18% of respondents support further expansion of the smoking ban in outdoor public area. More than 18% of respondents believe that some smoke-free generation policy will not be effective in preventing teenagers touching cigarettes. And we also find that more than 17 of the young people said that they can obtain cigarettes through sharing with friends or purchasing them on behalf of others. Um, we also conducted another survey that investigated if smokers, near the 70% in the BOE smokers said that they have tried to quit smoking but failed. 19% of them said that they have never used smoke sensation drugs and 70 of them did not know where to buy smoking sensation drugs. Okay. Well, so, um, you know, New Zealand has just passed a legislation to basically ban everybody 14 years old and under to to buy cigarettes, to buy tobacco. Is that going to work in Hong Kong? Uh, I think uh, it's not working in Hong Kong because uh, we should think, review, to understand the policy context of New Zealand. Although New Zealand has passed a ban on smoking, but New Zealand has affirmed the availability of electronic cigarettes, right? New Zealand's smoke-free environment views allow electronic cigarettes or heat cigarettes to be used legally by citizens. That's the key difference. On the contrary, considering the current situation of Hong Kong government, Hong Kong government is to crack down on e-cigarettes. If the new generation is completely banned from smoking, it will deteriorate the problem of illicit cigarettes. And Hong Kong government will also lose the tax revenue, right? When we making policy, we think of a, we have to think of a principle that we cannot completely ignore the citizens' right to choose. There must be an alternative for them. Actually, we are not encouraging the legalization of e-cigarettes, and now Hong Kong situation it is no permissive alternative. Right, and, and you mentioned in your survey earlier that, that a large number of, of teenagers they're simply getting the tobacco from their from their friends, from from maybe probably their older friends. So, so presumably, you know, if we do the New Zealand thing and ban it for people under a certain age, you can still get it from older people. Would that do you see that happening? Um, you mean the situation in Hong Kong, right? In Hong Kong, yeah. Yeah, you, you you mentioned earlier in your survey that a, a, a number of the of of the um, teenagers um, asked. They said that they were just getting the tobacco from their friends, and some of them didn't know how to how to get it. Um, so presumably, I mean, do you do you see if we 
ban people under a certain age from buying tobacco, there are still many other ways that they can get tobacco. Yes. yes. So, so what do you think is the answer? Uh, we should um, legislate to ban uh, anyone to help the teenagers to buy the cigarettes. Okay. So are you saying people who uh, help teenagers buy cigarettes, I mean, if they are caught, they should also be punished? Yes, about a penalty should be. Well, what kind of penalty uh, are you suggesting? I think that um, the, the penalty should, should be uh, refen- reflect on their tax. Reflect the tax on taxes. Raise the tax on, on tobacco, you mean? So the, who help the teenager? I see. Okay. Yeah. And I noticed uh, that uh, um, your, your survey also mentioned that uh, not a lot of, uh, I mean, some of the respondents feel that there is not a lot of help uh, um, for them to uh, quit smoking when they need it. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that? Is it about uh, government services or, or what is it about? Uh, can you repeat the question? Sorry. Uh, according to your survey, some some of your respondents also said there's uh, not a lot of uh, assistance offered to them uh, for um, quitting smoking. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, I in the interviews, um, I asked them. They always have a wish to to uh, quit smoking, but um, then they have no. No information of how to receive the the anti smoke the, the the drugs to uh, help them to quit smoking. As far as you know, how how common is it um, among teenagers in Hong Kong to actually take up smoking? I mean, nowadays you know you you, you can't smoke indoors. I don't see a lot of teenagers uh, at the back of school smoking. You know, how common is it for them to actually pick up the habit? Uh, it's always from um, they from from friends after school. Then have their um, channel to receive because the first try of cigarettes normally it is from the sharing. From sharing with 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 other teenagers. Yes, with uh, teenagers. Okay. Um... So when you um, talk about uh, in the survey, you also uh, have that, have a finding that, that shows that uh, the public are, are concerned about uh, the uh, impact of secondhand smoke. How has that uh, um, has that increased? I mean, have you done a similar survey before on this issue? Yes. And uh, so the number of people who are concerned about the impact of uh, secondhand smoke has uh, increased. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I mean, what did they actually say? Did they ex- uh, explain why did you find out? I mean, the reasons why they um, this are more worried about the impact of secondhand smoke now? Um, firstly, we uh, uh, observed that after interviewee and the respondent uh, is agreed to expand the area of smoking ban, reduce the impact of uh, the passive smoking and uh, expand the area of smoking to all public places. This is uh, supported by uh, the data. Uh, uh, but we think that... Um, Hello, our Ms. position is uh, certainly supporting the tobacco control work, but we must emphasize the method 
and that others will be on the correct way. All right, Mr. Cheung, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Parry Cheung, Secretary General of the Concern Group Community Development Pulsation. It's now 24 minutes past nine, and uh, it's time for our World Cup update with Atom Cheung, our sports correspondent. Good morning, Atom. So, France beat Morocco 2-0. Can you uh, give us a quick uh, recap of the game? Sure, yeah. So, uh, this year's World Cup final is going to be between, uh, be between France and Argentina after, uh, like you mentioned, France beating Morocco 2-0. So, uh, France made a really quick start. They scored five minutes into the game thanks to defender Teo Hernandez, who uh, made a nice volley from uh, very close to the net. So, France went up 1-0. Now, Morocco had injury problems ahead of the game, and this really hurt them. They started with five defenders. Two of them were actually replacements for regulars. And then later in the first half, they lost their captain and center back, Roman Seiss. And so uh, they made some early mistakes that actually led to the first goal. But uh, they were lucky because France couldn't take advantage. And Morocco actually almost tied it when Joao El Yamik, uh, he made an overhead kick, a bicycle kick that uh, hit the post just before halftime. So it was 1-0 for France at halftime. Then in the second half, uh, Morocco had chances, uh, especially uh, the uh, substitute Hamed Allah, who uh, had the ball in the box a few times but just didn't shoot for some reason. And um, Morocco had trouble uh, getting the ball up to the striker to, to really uh, try for goal. And then, uh, because of that, uh, France were able to hold on. And then on the uh, 79th minute, the substitute, Randall Kolo Muani, uh, delivered the knockout punch to make it 2-0. Uh, he found the ball uh, right next to the goal in an open net after Kylian Mbappe's shot was deflected straight at him. So uh, Kolo Muani scored uh, with his first touch of the ball uh, just after coming into, into the game and scoring. And so that was the way it finished. 2-0 uh, for France and they're going to be playing Argentina on Sunday. Right. And France got goals from unlikely sources. I mean, how was their performance, would you say? Yeah, so... Like I said, uh, Teo Hernandez is a defender. So, uh, you know, you don't usually see de defenders uh, score uh, in a big game like this. But the funny thing about this was uh, Hernandez was the one who fouled Harry Kane in the previous game against uh, England. And had Harry Kane scored that penalty, he would have been blamed for it. But he, instead, he went from goat to hero and he got this goal. Uh, an interesting stat is uh, four of five... Uh, of France's uh, last semi-final goals in the World Cup were scored by defenders, so go figure. And then uh, the other goal by uh, Kolo Muani. This is interesting because he was a very late addition to the French team. He got in because of an injury to another player. So, uh, yeah, I mean, luck is really pointing France's way. Right. And um, how would you assess the Morocco's performance? Yeah, you know, they gave it the best. But like I said, they were really hurt by injuries at the back. Losing their captain in the first half was really damaging to them. And he had to go. I, like, he wasn't really fit. But the coach used him because he meant so much to the team. But there was one play when Olivier Giroud, the French striker, just beat him flat out and almost scored, but the ball hit the post. And after that play, the coach decided, we can't do this anymore. We had to re replace you. Um, I also want to say the Moroccan midfield looked really strong. Sofiane Bouffal, Sofiane Amrabat, Azadi Unahi, and Hakim Ziyech. These guys had the ball 
for more than 60% of the game. This is really great for Morocco against a, a, a world-class team like France. But the problem was they couldn't set up their striker. They couldn't get that goal. And so, yeah, a, a good performance, but that just fell short against the defending world, world champions. And uh, so what's next for Morocco? They still have a game to play, right? That's right. So there is the third place match against Croatia on Saturday night. Um, I think this is a chance for the Moroccan fans to celebrate. Uh, last night, there were 50,000 fans at El Bay Stadium. There will be at least as many for that third place match. It kind of reminds me of 2002 when South Korea made it into the semifinals. They were the first Asian team to go that far. And uh, even though they lost in the semifinals, that third place match was a chance for the fans to really cheer for them. And I hope the same goes for the Moroccans tomorrow. And hopefully they can go out with a win. So, yeah, so that's happening on uh, Saturday at 11 p.m. Hong Kong time, Morocco versus Croatia for third place. All right, Atom, we'll have to leave it here for now. Speak to you again tomorrow. That's uh, Atom Chung, our sports correspondent. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today and, of course, to our guest presenter, Jenny Lam, and our producer, Yuki. Now, here's the weather. Cold and cloudy with a few rain patches. The top temperature will be around 16 degrees. Winds moderate to fresh north to northeasterlies. And it will be even colder over the weekend, with temperatures in the urban areas falling below 10 degrees. And uh, right now, the uh, temperature reading at the observatory is 14 degrees. Relative humidity, 94%. I'm Bloomy the Tree. When you see my Tremark logo in a shop, it's a social enterprise. Social enterprises provide diversified products and services. They're dedicated to contributing to society. With a self-sustaining model for their continued development, they create job opportunities for the disadvantaged, building a caring and harmonious society. Visit sehk.gov.hk for more on the tree mark. Let's support social enterprises and help them bloom. It's 9.30, the news with Andrew Shirovsky. Chinese university researchers have awarded Hong Kong's children and adolescents a low D-minus grade for their overall physical activity. They said only 25% of youngsters met the global standard of doing 60 minutes of exercise each day. President Biden has said the United States should have society.